The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... We've got mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. And for the purposes of this podcast, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. Uh, it was a name I chose for myself. It's a name I'm going to have to live up to. Uh, and One of these days, I want someone to recognize you in public and say, hey, Rockmeister. They'll say, yeah. Um... <laughs> There is no incorrect spelling of Rockmeister McCool. We have people spell it in phonetic Hebrew. Mm-hmm. I think somebody uh, wrote in recently in Urdu. Nice. Uh, and, Did we get it in Wingdings once? Uh, we got it in Wingdings at, at one point. Nice. Nicely I, done. I tried to find a Wingding translator, mm. like, online to see if I could, like, copy it and paste it and see what it actually uh-huh. said, but I... I had no luck on my phone. I would have well, to go on my just, laptop. You could have just put it into like your Word document. I know. I didn't. I didn't have access. Didn't have access to a Word document right. at that moment. Well, in any case, it's it's a it's a code to be solved at mm. a further date. Um, but yeah, you uh, you email us uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address, and uh, we answer your questions. We talk about pressing issues of the day. We recommend movies. We talk about movies that maybe you wish we had reviewed, but we never got around to. Um, and sometimes we talk about weird stuff like popsicles or what have you. So uh, <laughs> the popsicle one just still sticks in my head. What a wonderfully eccentric it, choice. It, it was a good question. I it was a good it. question, and we had a lot of insight. <laughs> it was a surprisingly deep topic. Um, so, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, we don't like to uh, dilly-dally right here at the front. This is your this is your podcast. Mm. You have as much time as you want. Whitney, let's read the first letter. Uh, this is from Toralf. Hi, Toralf. Hello, Toralf. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Rockmeister uh, is spelled with uh, the German S, which in, oh. in looks like an English uh, uppercase B. Uh, I put as many German umlauts in there as I could. I keep forgetting <laughs> to write the letters I want to write, so a few questions have piled up. I'll give them all numbers, so okay. you, you can pick only one, since I know your time is limited. No, we're reading them all. How, uh, how many are there? There are uh, four. Ah, so, not so fine. many. Yeah. All right, that's fine. Um, first, I want to start with a complaint. Stop making so many damn podcasts. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Who has the time to listen to all this stuff? I During the know. pandemic, I had less podcast time since the commute wasn't there anymore. Mm. Yet your podcasts, are, podcasts increased his or her output. I have to I have some 50 hours on my playlist and it drives me nuts. Enough rambling, so on to the questions. We stepped up our game uh, because of the pandemic. Yeah. We figured people were home, they were bored a lot more, so we wanted to just start churning. We also didn't expect that everyone would try to listen to every single thing that we did, hmm. which I, it's my understanding some people actually do, and I'm very well, flattered thanks. and honored yeah, by that. Thank you for, for following us, but we, we don't, stepped don't up, feel bad if you let one or two fall by the way. We, we stepped up our production because we wanted to put more stuff out there for people so that there would be more stuff for people to be interested in, and maybe some podcasts for people who weren't interested in the other podcast we were doing, like the new Star Wars podcast that we did this year, which we are getting back to and finishing. 
Yeah, we, I have, took we a, have one final episode before we're bringing the Star Wars Episode Zero podcast to an end. Well, two episodes total. Or two episodes, yeah, two, two more episodes. episodes yeah. Uh, but we're going to get to that real, real soon. We we had a rough September. We're, we're fixing it. Um, but uh, yeah, so listen, we actually, we, we realized that we were able to make so many podcasts because the pandemic and we lost so much work and we had the time and we wanted to, um, you know, make some nice criticism yeah. for our, for our various listeners, but there will come a time when we will have to pull back. Um, yeah. Well, we're presumably, you know, jobs and school and what have you will resume in a reasonable at fashion. Point. And uh, at yeah, some so. point, yeah. So at that point we're, di- we're literally not gonna be able to do it all. And um, at that point we'll have to look at our podcasts and make some, to- make some calls mm-hmm. and maybe we'll uh, invite you, our mm-hmm. listeners to let us know which ones mm-hmm. that you can't live without. You know, unless we get like, you know, red letter media or something and get like 15,000 subscribers, then we'll just do podcasts. Look, if we, we won't do any other jobs look, again, <laughs> we, we have like a thing like on our Patreon right now where if we make five thousand dollars a month, which seems ridiculous, but we're doing good. Actually, mm. thank you so much to all of our patrons. They really are keeping us afloat right now. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, if we hit five thousand, we can kind of stop doing day jobs so much and just focus on this and put out some really good content. Mm. Like yeah. we can put so we can do some like quality stuff like we really want to do if we mm-hmm. just didn't have to be distracted by anything else. So um, in any case, it's a it's a criticism we've received. We are taking it seriously <laughs> and we may need to scale back right. a bit in the future. Um, we now, will if, let you know when that happens. If you're listening and saying, no, also give some input. No, we need more. Uh, anyway, <laughs> on to the questions. Uh, number one, your grading scale on your movie review podcast. You grade movies according to the critically acclaimed scale from C plus to C minus. I understand that you do this not to be put on posters. What I do not understand is why don't you guys want to be on posters? <laughs> Isn't it advertisement for you? What am I missing? here um that's a complicated issue actually it, it is a complicated issue uh yes we actually really love being quoted you sir mm-hmm. uh probably have the highest profile quote i've ever seen uh. because you're on the dvd box for frozen yeah i uh, really liked frozen when yeah. it came out i i called it uh, and i meant it at the mm-hmm. time uh the the disney's disney animation's best film since the lion king i think is what i said yeah and i stand by that there are a couple of competitors and if you wanted to make that argument i wouldn't fight you but i think frozen was an instant classic and i think we've already kind of mostly agreed on that so yeah they put me on the box and i'm like yeah i said it i don't mind being quoted on something if it's what i said I i do mind being misquoted or being quoted out of context, looks like I'm saying something that I'm not. Mm. That has happened or and, almost and happened a couple of times. And that's an issue. Yeah. Um, that's that's actually something a lot of critics take issue with about being quoted. Uh, those quotes are chosen by publicists. Mm-hmm. We don't submit them to the film. We just no. publish our review. I've been to a couple they of junkets where, to, they, where they do say, if you want to submit to, to tell us you're writing a quote, mm. you can tell us and we would appreciate it. But like you yeah. aren't obligated to do that. Right. Often the... Uh, Often the studio will ask us personally, like if they read the review, they'll, they'll write an email to us, the critic, and say, can we quote your review? Mm-hmm. So they ask, but they don't always have to. They can always just ask your editor or the outlet and say, yeah. hey, can we quote your the review you published? Yeah. So sometimes we don't even have say. Uh, yeah. I was shocked to see my name quoted on the Midsommar advertising. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. I see my name on lights next to Florence Pugh looking miserable. Uh <laughs> And the quote they chose, they like laid it on on the back, so it sounded like I was writing a rhyming couplet. It was really kind of embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, that was like, kind of was, funny, actually. It really, like, it really did like, kind of rhyme. Yeah, the, the genre has found a new master in filmmaker Ari Aster. It's like, oh god. 
I wasn't trying to do that, he but you laid it out in a cute. way so it looked like I was trying Listen, to do a little, you, little poem. When you really like a movie or when you say, you know, part of being a critic is saying what's good as well as what's bad. And sometimes you say what's good in a clear and concise way. Mm-hmm. And they want to quote you. I'm, I'm actually quoted, I think, twice in the original trailer for Whiplash. Oh, there you go. Um, yep. Because I was actually at the very first screening of that at Sundance and mm-hmm. I was really taken with it. Um, it's a good movie. It's a really good movie. I love that movie. But um, it's dark and controversial, but I think it works. And um, But yeah, so... The downside of being quoted is uh, actually there's there's several. One, you can be misquoted, mm-hmm. you can be misattributed. There's also this sort of perception of if you're quoted a lot, mm-hmm. that becomes kind of what you're known for is just liking stuff. Peter Travers. We've all seen Peter Travers is, <laughs> is quoted on many things. He's the, he's been the uh, film critic for Rolling Stone for almost as long as I can remember now. And practically any movie he even kind of likes, he tends to be quoted for it in a poster mm. or a trailer and or I th- a and I don't newspaper th- advertisement. And I'm not sure if he changed his writing to match the language of, like, advertisements I, I, can or say. if he just always wrote that way. Some but people are just concise and some, clear, you know? Like, but if there, I like something, yeah. I just say I like it. The point is, there's some doubt now. And if yeah. you constantly see Peter Travers quoted on movie posters, you begin to become a little suspect of yeah. the way he writes the way he talks about movies and maybe even his sincerity. Now I, I'm not, I want to say right away, yeah. I want to have on the record. I am not uh, doubting Peter Travers sincerity. I actually Norma. respect him as a critic very much. Norma, I, I 100% respect mm. him as a critic, but we've all seen the perception shift that exactly. way where you yeah. see just the same. So I was just talking about again. perception, not about yeah. Peter Travers. And we integrity. don't want to be part of that perception mm. if we can avoid it. Now, again, if I really like a movie, and they say, would you mind if we quoted you? I don't mind as long as I said that quote. Mm. But the thing is, is that when we had the idea, like some people requested that we do our own critically acclaimed rating scale, uh-huh. uh, simply because sometimes we would go on a very long conversation about pros and cons and people felt like we weren't sure if you liked it or you didn't. Yeah. So what just overall is your general consensus. And that's, I think, is the value of these kinds of like star ratings or letter ratings or whatever system people use. It's not supposed to boil down to that. But if anyone's just looking for a really quick, did, did they like it? Oh, they did. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Like if that's all you're looking for, it's in there. Um, But we didn't want to come up with one that was just easy to quote. Yeah. And that could potentially take the place of meaningful criticism so we wanted to make sure we had a rating system that didn't seem like we were just giving out yeah, gold like stars st- you know? yeah, yeah. star star ratings yeah. and stuff like a plus says yeah. critically Here's claimed, a sticker, so yeah. you know yeah, but if we say this is the greatest film of the year c plus they can't really quote that, that well sounds like... you can leave out the c plus i guess i, I really suppose wouldn't mind so, but yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see, I'd love to see that quote on a poster. Right. <laughs> Based film of the year, C plus as yeah. the critically acclaimed network. Um, um, so, so that those are the reasons. Yeah. Those are the reasons why um, we just we just don't want to be those people who are quoted all the time, and then everyone says they like everything. Yeah, we'd, we'd yeah. rather have you contend with our opinions in a little bit more sophisticated a fashion. That's the idea, um, anyway. Uh, question number two, Toys for Girls and Boys. On Council number two, uh, Council Too Soon number 190, you talked about Nerf for Girls and other toys that are gendered to a specific gender. This mm-hmm. uh, confuses me as well. It confuses me even more when I think about my niece. She would never take the pink stuff and my mm-hmm. nephew, who will always take the pink stuff. Not really a question, just a comment, really. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I was in a toy store. Uh, Nerf, I think the line failed, but they put out a line of Nerf guns for girls. Yeah suction dart guns like there's that's not a gendered thing but they colored it all pink and purple and silver and they called it rebel 
B E L L E. Oh, yeah, and Come and on. and all the and the all the all, all artwork was girls playing with Nerf yeah. toys. It's just Nerf darts, man. And yeah, they're, was... they're, 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 first off, I think we go way overboard on gendering our toys in general, and was... be like, it's they, they still rely on that as a marketing strategy. You go into mm-hmm. any toy store. You can yes. just see. Here's, Here's the, the boys, pink section. The boys section and the, the girls section. Bo- what? Girls get uh, pink, purple, and white. Boys get all the other colors. It's really fair. And uh, I no- I noticed how badly how badly uh, toys were gendered when I had a son. Yeah. Because uh, you I fall a, out I of toys a, after a while. Exactly. Most, most I was, do, wasn't yeah. really following it, you know, the toy world. Yeah. But Some people uh, do follow the toy world yeah. when they're adults, and I'm not judging. It's just a lot of people don't have the time or money for it. And yeah. then you get sort of rocketed back when you have like, I had nieces and then mm. like, Oh, I need to go shopping for their gifts. And I'm like, Whoa, what the hell yeah, is and going to- on? And Toys, Toys, R- Toys R Us is really sharply divided. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was, I thought things had changed. And I remember reading a lot of news stories about how like a lot of uh, things weren't being gendered anymore. And a lot of toys that were previously gendered were, uh, being shrunk or rebranded slightly, and that is not the case. Mm-hmm. It's not the case at all. So, yeah, that is that is something that's happening. That's a, uh, that's a weird thing. Question number three. Film scores. I recently listened hmm. to a playlist of the 100 best movie scores of all time okay. performed by the City uh, city of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. That's cool. I was amused how many of the songs I knew without knowing what they came from or hmm. specific, the specific movie. Like, for example, uh, the Harry Lime theme from The Third Man. Yeah. Or the Colonel Bogey theme from The Bridge on the River Kwai. Are there other songs that you guys were surprised to find out uh, they originated from a film? uh, Or do you know of examples that are often used on a regular basis without, quote, normal people knowing the origin of the song? Uh, Maybe some listeners can write in examples. Uh, The most common version of this, um, film scores are often reused. Sometimes if they're like, iconic, usually if they're iconic, advertisements, TV shows, TV shows, satires, will, yeah. TV shows will often like you know if we're doing an homage to I don't know Raiders of the Lost Ark or mm. whatever, they will use that score or a very similar score, like just different enough for copyright purposes, but we're definitely trying to evoke your John memory Williams, of yeah. whatever movie we're talking about, Casablanca, Lawrence of Arabia, whatever it is. Um, but more commonly I find than that is trailers are frequently cut before the score is finished. Often the score is one of, if not the last thing done on a movie. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the vast majority of trailers are cut before they know what the movie's score sounds like. So they just take other movie scores. Yeah. They take other movie scores that they, I don't, sometimes I I don't know how often they run this by the person who's actually doing the score saying, is this going to be representative of the movie? I imagine that doesn't happen all the time. I imagine it would never happen. It would be nice I, to I, think, actually, right? Actually, our friend Max, he cuts trailers, and they yeah. don't they don't have to no, ask the filmmakers. So. They don't. But it would be nice if they did. Mm-hmm. But in any case, uh, so oftentimes you will hear snippets of film scores that become instantly iconic because, ooh, look at all this cool new stuff they're doing. But you might not always realize that that's actually the theme from John Milius's Conan the Barbarian. Mm. That one came up a lot when we were young. I think it was I used in the trailer for Gladiator. I know lo- uh, yeah. uh, Lord of the Rings, the third Lord of the Rings film, yeah. uh, used, uh, that's supposedly like everything, it's the third in, of three and it's really, really mm. serious. Everything's coming down to this. And uh, so they had to choose some really intense kind of dour music and uh. they used the score from Requiem for a Dream. You're actually misremembering this. Mm. It was for Two Towers. Oh, it was for two towers. It was that for did two towers. Okay. I remember it very distinctly. I was pretty sure I, it was Return of the King. It, it, but it, all right. I understand your rationale for that, but I remember that very vividly because oh, okay. there was a ton of footage from Helm's Deep. I got it wrong. Uh, okay. But yeah, they they did. A, but they actually reorchestrated the theme 
from Requiem for a Dream, which is an amazing score, mm-hmm. but it's actually kind of minimalist in a lot of ways, and they put together a full orchestration to make it truly epic. Mm-hmm. It works. It's a brilliant right. score. It's great. Um, mm-hmm. The one that I heard quoted a lot, and I actually had seen the film, but the film itself wasn't very good. So I didn't really put it together that its score was so wonderfully grand and epic, and that's why it was being used constantly in like montages of the greatest movies ever mm-hmm. or uh, big upcoming fantasy films, and that's the theme to Dragonheart. <laughs> Dragonheart has an amazingly good theme. I think it's James Newton Howard did that one. Mm-hmm. That theme is stunning. Stunning. <laughs> and if you ever have to do a montage of like inspiring movie clips, Dragonheart, mwah, wonderful. Another one I noticed started doing that. It's, it's interesting when it's a movie that itself wasn't a hit, but the score is so good, yeah. it lives on beyond it. Uh, the incredible, and I use this, quote me, I don't care, the incredible live action Peter Pan directed by PJ Hogan. It's a great movie. Absolutely wonderful fantasy movie. One of my favorite fantasy movies, period. It's gorgeous. It's really well done. Everything about it is great. And one of the best things about it is it's really wonderful score. Mm. That score got swooped up by Disney and it became their Disneyland commercial theme for many years. It might still be, actually. Mm. It's been a while since I've seen one. But for many years, that was the Disneyland theme song. It's like... It's great. It's I'm 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 not doing it justice. But seriously, that's a wonderful score, and that's another uh, good example of that. Also, a uh, thin red line was another one that wasn't like a huge hit, but that score got used in a ton oh, of yeah. war movies. I remember the first time I heard a score I recognized in a movie trailer, mm. and I th- it was for some kids' magic film. It might have been a simple wish if you even remember that film. Oh, was that with Mara Wilson? And Mara Wilson, and Martin uh, Short, and yeah. Kathleen Turner, and it, oh, it was Kathleen Turner. It's Kathleen Turner was oh, like yeah. the, the villainess in that movie. That's a movie I uh, frequently confuse with the Gerard Depardieu film Bogus. They came out uh, yeah. around the same time. They're both yeah, about like, like kids like, with yeah. magical genie friends. Uh, yeah, uh, I remember that one used the score for both Edward Scissorhands and The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh. And, at, and at the time, I was like the world's biggest Danny Elfman fan. So that seemed and cool so, to you, yeah. No, it didn't seem cool. No. It's, like, it's like, no, that's a different movie. <laughs> you can't use Edward Scissorhands. That's Edward Scissorhands. Nice. That's a movie I've seen a dozen times. And you know, same with Nightmare Before Christmas. I'd watch that movie a lot. Yeah. Uh, and they used the, the, the opening uh, arpeggios from uh, What's This? Uh, oh, because yeah. it's really what's upbeat this? and what's it's this? really a that was that was used in a lot of previews and I think that was the first time I heard it was in A Simple Wish it's like you're cheating you're cheating <laughs> that's a different movie and I know that movie do you think I'm dumb <laughs> and I became a little more jaded that day oh um, I had another one I wanted to bring up and now I'm spacing on it I might, it might just come rocketing back mm-hmm. into my consciousness in which case okay, uh, that's it fourth question okay. uh, fourth question more Star Trek podcasts please <laughs> So I know. Does your voice go up at the end when you say that? Your no. voice is more Star Trek questions, please? please. Uh, yes, I know I complained about the number of podcasts, but hear me out. At the rate they make new Star Treks, you guys will never catch up. How about a new weekly show where you keep up with all the content that comes out now? You could start with Lower Decks, since it's still pretty new. Then you can uh, hope the third season of Discovery is better than the first and second season. Second season had a few highlights, but the finale was just a mess, and so on. Just an idea. It's a nice idea. Um, however, Whitney and I don't like new things. 
We like old things. Um, no, actually, I think the raison d'etre behind our Star Trek podcast, which if you're not part of our Patreon, it's a Patreon-exclusive podcast called All Our Yesterdays, mm. and we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Um, fair warning, we might have to take one week off of that because we're waiting for a special guest to be available. But we won't wait more than two weeks for it. So yeah. in, in two weeks, we'll definitely have an episode if we don't have one next week. But um, in any case, uh, yeah, so we're, we're currently, we just wrapped season two of Star Trek, the original series. There's one more season of Star Trek, the original series, and there's the animated series and the movies and Star Trek The Next Generation. And that's going to be concurrent with Deep Space Nine, which will be concurrent with Voyager. And going to take us a while <laughs> however i think if we start jumping this is correct me from tell me if you have a different take on this i think if we start jumping around we're not going to get this sense of great context that i really want to do where i really want to look at it not from here's what's currently popular looking backwards i want mm. us to get started right from the beginning and watch it in order i think that's the idea yeah and that doesn't yeah. prevent us from watching other star trek stuff in the interim and in, but and in the fact, idea uh, is to really try to focus on watching it in the order it was presented because and, that's different and we do, I, I at least, because com- I am keeping up with the all-access mm-hmm. stuff, and uh, just because I'm a sucker, and uh, I'm commenting on how it is as we go here and there. But yeah, yeah I'm not, not going episode by episode, and I think, when it, especially when it comes to Star Trek, a broader context is an important part of it. Yeah. Uh, not, we get not so just, focused you know, on what's coming out right now hmm. that sometimes I think we don't focus enough on what came before. And I, and mean, the, and I mean going beyond lists of the best episodes ever or the coolest monsters or the most important deaths or whatever. That's fun, but we want to do everything. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I also think that if we were to do the new CBS All Access shows, they're constructed as these series-long story arcs. Yeah. And as such, we would be able to comment on maybe little developments in a bigger story, but without the end of the story... It would just be a podcast about speculation. Yeah. About what they could possibly do. And I find that to be completely tiresome. Look, we all enjoy like imagining what could be, coming up with headcanon, mm. coming up with stories that we wish we could see. That's part of being a fan, and that can mm. be really, really fun. But I think a lot of shows, a lot of podcasts and YouTube series in particular, get kind of fall into a trap sometimes of focusing on what's new so much that you're caught up immediately. And the only thing that's left is to wonder about the future. And then you start taking wondering about the future and turning it into a fact of the present. And then all of the speculation becomes more elevated in the discourse than it should be. And I think that's when we fall into real problems. We'd rather talk about what we actually have because we know what happened we know what it led to we know mm. i mean it's all leading to something more and more all the time but like we all thought that you know the story of the original enterprise crew was over and then they rebooted the movies so now there's more kirk stories mm. than we had before but whatever we can't control that so we just want to focus on what we've got and really give that the once over and not make it all about what is current although it would be nice one day to catch up and i do think it's possible that at one point we might pick up the pace on that a little bit more but we shall see hmm. anyway uh, he he closes out his letter saying as always keep up the good work and make more star trek podcasts <laughs> <laughs> we will we will continue to make hmm. star trek podcasts do do not worry okay <laughs> we do love them. um here is a letter from Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. I'm glad you uh, 
Uh, let's see. First off, I have not written since the B-Movies podcast ended. Thanks for reading my previous letters. But to anyone who have not listened to the B-Movies podcast, trust me, they are worth listening to. Ah. Stop groaning. Ah. I know you guys cringe at some of your episodes, but you shouldn't. I loved your episodes on George Romero films, the Halloween franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street, Tremors, and interviews with directors and actors from the earlier podcasts. I did like our interviews. That's, I that's the parts do, I, I... I do regret that we lost yeah. those. Yeah. Uh, it a is lot fun. of those were good. It is fun to listen to letters on this podcast from people who have only recently discovered you from critically acclaimed or canceled too soon. I envy them because there's still a back catalog of some of your more recent B-Movies podcast episodes, and they can still listen to those. Uh, where can we find those? I'm uh, if, not sure they're available. Um, I, I have... Uh, MP3s of them on my computer, but they're not available like online anywhere. Yeah, no, no, yeah. they're they're not available online, and they're not really ours, so we yeah, can't really yeah. do so, much about that. So Sorry. yeah, like I, I have them for posterity's sake, but yeah, I can't really yeah. distribute them. And I have them on a I have them on a big hard drive somewhere. Yeah, but, yeah. like they're not dead, but they are yeah. kind of not ours to distribute, and that it's, does stink. Yeah. Sorry about that. The good ones I I miss. I do. You'll be in for a treat if you go back and listen to their old podcasts. I've been following you two ever since, whether it be appearances on What the Flick, check out Sense Eight, analyses, and best horror films of the 21st century on YouTube. Uh, the Schmoes canceled too soon are now critically acclaimed. Uh, two items. One, bibs. Yes. During a few recent podcasts, you have criticized movies that try to get the shy introverted characters to, quote, loosen up a man and change who they are, as if being introverted were a character flaw. As a fellow introvert myself, I must say thank you. Mm-hmm. Finally, someone said it. Thank you. Uh, two, I don't know if you will read this on air. We will. Uh, <laughs> Feel free to claim that these are the opinions of your listener and not your own. Well, that, there's the... Done. There's the, uh, the, the... The caveat. Caveat right there. During your show, you constantly quote and praise the late film critic Roger Ebert. Uh, I went to University of Illinois, and fortunately, Roger, and fortunately Roger Ebert hosted his Overlooked Film Festival right there in Champaign, his hometown, every year. I looked up to him so much as a kid, I am the same age as Bibbs. I read his weekly articles, I never missed an episode of Siskel and Ebert, and I was very excited to meet him on campus as a college freshman. Throughout my college years, I met him three different times, twice at different book signings and once at a film festival, all public appearances, never interrupting a dinner or a private event. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, don't ever eh, s- spring it on. So, well, nah. some people don't mind, but don't yeah. don't be rude. Don't be rude. Uh, yeah. Uh, all three times I met him, he was a pompous ass <laughs> <laughs> who treated his fans like crap. Oh, that's too bad. Unfortunately, if you're a college student, he would simply ignore you and only talk to older adults. The film festivals was just a love fest for Roger. He had so many people kissing his ass and nodding their head in agreement, no matter what he said or what film he presented. I hate writing this, but felt compelled after your frequent references to Ebert. I looked him up. I looked up to him so much that it really hurt to find out that he was not a nice person to his fans. Ebert had, has even been quoted for writing, quote, extreme fandom may serve as a security blanket for the socially inept who uses extreme structure as a substitute for social skills. Your fanish obsession is your beard. If you know absolutely all the trivia about your cubbyhole of pop culture, it saves you from having to know any about anything about anything else. That is why it's excruciatingly boring to talk to such people. They're always asking you questions they know the answers to. Full quote can be found and he leaves a link. Yeah. I, I remember that that quote. Um, Oh, what was he talking about? I don't know. I, uh, I think Roger Ebert also said, uh, if, if you're, if you're camping out overnight to buy tickets to a movie, you're more interested in camping than movies. <laughs> That's it. I, li- I always like that. Can't we be yeah. both? Yeah. <laughs> we can be both. Note, I do not consider myself an extreme fan anymore than you guys or listeners. Uh, if you were ever, uh, if you were ever to have met him. Um, I never met him. Yeah. I, yeah, I never no. met him either. And, uh, um, it goes to show you that yeah. sometimes it is not best to meet your heroes. I know that he and Pauline Kale paved the way for influential film critics, and there are other film critics out there who are equally as good as Roger these days, including you both. Oh, oh pish, goodness sake. That, but thank you. Uh, Alonso Duralde and Dave White. Yeah, those guys the, the, are great. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. 
and the best and the rest of the breakfast all day crew, Christy Lemire, Matt Atchity, and Ben Minkowitz. There's a lot of brilliant critics out there. Yeah, right yeah. Uh, so, oh, there's so many great people out there right yeah. now. Uh, you will never admit that, but it is true. It is uh, refreshing to listen to film critics who do not automatically automatically dismiss slasher films. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Um, Ebert used to. I read at least one review from Ebert. I think it was one of the Halloween sequels mm-hmm. where he didn't even review the movie. He just listed things he got distracted and thought about while watching the film which and is, getting bored. Which is a you know a review of a sort. But it's incredibly but, uh, dismissive, and it really yeah. pissed me off. I'm not gonna lie. No, Wait, but, is that the did, end of the email? No, not yet. Um, uh, let's finish it up and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, it that. says, uh, my question to you is, have you ever met or interviewed an artist, act, actor, or director you really admired who is not at all pleasant with you? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have, has it affected your critique when viewing their work? Have you not reviewed a film based on th- based on this personal bias? I don't expect you to name names. I still respect Roger Ebert as a writer, but his cold interaction with me and other college students put a sour taste in my mouth. I ended up not attending his Overlooked Film Festival my senior year. I hope this email does not come off as sounding like a troll. Oh, goodness, no. no, 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 no you, you, you put yourself out well. I do admit that he was a great writer and an influential film critic, and I do not, I do not wish what happened to him on anyone. No, I love your yeah. show, Andrew. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, he had a rough go of it in the last few years. Uh, this uh, yeah. after he had uh, was it was it what kind of cancer did he have? He had, uh, yeah, on his tongue, like on yeah. a salivary gland. Yeah, he had to remove like the lower part of his yeah, jaw. And it, it spread it into rough. his jaw, and he had to remove yeah. a big part of his face. Uh, yeah, Roger Ebert, if you watched the documentary film Life Itself, uh, it's pretty upfront about what a pompous ass he was. Yeah, he could be a real elitist jerk mm. a lot of the time. That doesn't mean he wasn't also an excellent writer, mm. an insightful critic, but it does mean that there were times when Roger Ebert pissed me the hell off. Often in his dismissal of certain films and genres, um, I, he lost me com- like almost completely um, around like the early 2000s, late 2000s. Mm. When he started declaring that video games not only were not art, mm. but could never be art. <laughs> and that I thought was just right. shockingly tone deaf and really ignorant of what people were doing with the medium. Mm. And yeah, I get it. He's old. He's not playing video games. He's not like yeah, keeping he... up with what's going on. But it, the fact that he said it wasn't possible yeah struck me as frustratingly close-minded well he he was very articulate about why he thought that wasn't possible but at the same time he wasn't playing games you didn't really know mm. what what was being done with the medium yeah. he had a very very rudimentary understanding and eventually he kind of reluctantly uh relented yeah he's just like okay no i don't think so and people would say no no how about these how about these and he'd like play a little bit of the games like no i'm not i'm not seeing it i'm not seeing it and eventually he just got so much mail uh that he said you know what i i just have to admit i don't know this this medium yeah. this is just not I my kinda, thing i kind of spoke out of turn i'm gonna I'm stop just gonna, i'm just yeah. gonna stop talking about it because clearly yeah. i don't know enough and Would, uh yeah but yeah for a while there he was really trying to fight this sort of yeah. uh philosophical battle but yeah in life itself there's this really wonderful anecdote uh, Roger Ebert very openly was an alcoholic and, uh, mm. he also fancied himself a newspaper man <laughs> in that old fashioned sort of way. He's going to go down to the newspaper and work for the press. If memory and, serves uh, in the opening of Siskel and Ebert, he was the one who was working on a typewriter, right? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So he, he considered himself kind of this classical guy and he'd go to the bar where all the writers hung out and they'd have a few drinks and talk important things. And, uh, the anecdote is about how two writers, Roger and, and this other guy were getting together and they were just slamming back all this liquor and talking about who was the more sophisticated of the two of them. It's like, no, I'm more sophisticated. No, I'm more sophisticated. And the guy said, it's two drunks in a bar in Chicago. Neither of them is sophisticated. <laughs> 
So he wasn't always the most self-aware guy, yeah. <laughs> which, uh, and you know what? I think that's also very human. And yeah. eventually he would admit to such things later in his life. Yeah. But that doesn't mean, he, and but, the other thing but, is, but again, hmm. he was kind of a dick sometimes. Yeah. And, and think, sometimes people are. And, and that's, well, that's how, a thing. How much you're willing to forgive or or not forgive that is just going to be up to you. And that's entirely up to yeah. you. If you have a bad experience with someone, they rubbed you the wrong way, especially if it was in person and they mm-hmm. had an opportunity to be nice and they didn't. And you're not a, you, you rubbed you the wrong way. That's perfectly reasonable. We've all had experiences like that. Um, I've met a lot of celebrities over the years, uh, usually in an interview capacity. Um, and... I'll say the majority have been nice or at the very least doing their job that day and not being unpleasant. Hmm. Um, there are a few who were seemingly rude. Um, I don't think William Friedkin would mind if I mentioned that he can be kind of a curmudgeon. Uh, did, did you ever get to interview Tommy Lee Jones? No, I've heard he, the he stories. He was a, a no- notoriously bad interview. Same I, with Harrison Ford. Uh, Harrison Ford was a notoriously bad interview. In fact, I, I, people actually like were like, practically giving me high fives because I actually got him to laugh. <laughs> Which is impossible, my yeah. God. No, but well, he, he lightened up when he started doing Star Wars interviews for The Force Awakens. But before that, he had a, a real like notorious like reputation for being a tough interview. And if you mentioned Star Wars, he would clam up. Yeah, he just yeah. he talked it to death. He wasn't interested anymore. He was ready to move on. Please talk to me about something else that I'm doing. Mm. And we were able to have a pretty good conversation, and that was nice. But that doesn't mean everyone's nice all yeah. the time. Uh, William Friedkin was just standoffish and didn't have like yeah. kind of was you know not always cool about the questions that I asked, which were pretty reasonable. Why would you want to adapt this that kind of thing? And he just thought it were weren't good questions yeah, and yeah. you're not wrong William Friedkin but I did think it was relevant but here's the thing <laughs> here's the thing I interviewed William Friedkin and I had a rough go of it and everyone's like he he can be like that mm-hmm. and then I interviewed him again later on he was very nice okay. I got him on a good day and this is something that I've learned and I've learned this from meeting a variety of celebrities on different days um sometimes you meet a good person on a bad day and sometimes you meet a bad person on a good day yeah and sometimes that can happen multiple times. And you don't know what they're going through in their life. Every celebrity, whether they're a big giant, makes $50 million movie superstar, or just an author that you like who probably doesn't get all those big accolades all the time, um, you don't know what they're going through. Mm. You don't know what's happening to them that day. You don't know what their health is like or what their family situation is that day. You don't know if someone just like scratched their car and they're upset these it can happen so mm. i tend to be a little forgiving if i meet a celebrity and it's not like a really ideal situation however that might be the only opportunity me have to meet no. someone and they might be a jerk i interviewed one of my favorite interviews i've ever done was a tilda swinton <laughs> who actually had like uh, a really famous like viral video that came out when she actually hosted a movie at one of ebert's uh, uh film festivals where mm. she insisted everyone dance like beforehand to get into the mood to watch the film and i talked to her about that and about uh, meeting your heroes and she actually had the opposite idea always meet your heroes if you can mm. meet your heroes because they're not necessarily more valuable if you don't know about them and can put them on a pedestal Sometimes knowing that they're human and yeah. flawed and, you know, that they're, they, they don't live up to your standards can be just as useful information because you can be flawed and still do worthwhile things. Exactly. Uh, that, that's yeah. not a guarantee you're going to do worthwhile mm. things. Don't just be mean and hope it works out. But, you know, we're all, we're all, 
we're all human and yeah. we're all messed up. And well, if, if I were, we're all trying. if I were to walk up to John Waters and to say, I'm a big fan of your movies. And he punches me in the face and says, <laughs> get out of my face. You little pissant. I'd be honored. <laughs> I would stand uh, up for you. Well, because thank you. No one treats Whitney Seibold like that in front of me. Okay. Uh, it, it's okay. I'm a wimp. You can beat me up. I, I will not fight back. Uh, that is not that is not advice for our fans. I'm, I'm not, if you meet Whitney in like a random place, I'm not inviting place. you to do that. Just <laughs> it should it happen. Uh, yeah, I uh, the best interviews I've given were just with nice people. Yeah. They're just nice and they're really communicative yeah. and, and they're really friendly. Uh, a lot of big celebrity. Who was it? Was it Ashley Judd? Who said that they pay her the big bucks like for the interviews to be a movie star? Uh, with, uh, I, the way I heard, and this mm. might be apocryphal, it's one of the stories I heard secondhand. No. Uh, was Michelle Pfeiffer? Michelle Pfeiffer who said, okay. "I act for free. Mm. I get paid to be a celebrity." There you go. Because so, hey, being a celebrity is like a full time gig, yeah, and I, it can get real annoying. I remember I got to interview Matt Damon for The Monuments mm. Men, yeah. uh, and uh, I was like reporter number 104 out of 112. I was near the yeah. end of his day and he had yeah. gone through so many of these interviews. He's in this room under hot lights, just sitting in the same director's chair yeah. all day, answering, answering the same, the same five damn questions. questions. And there's not a lot of time. And I, the same five. I walked in and I could see how spent he was. Like mm-hmm. he'd been working really hard all day. And as soon as he saw me, he pricked up, he turned on again. Yeah. And I could see that this is part of the work. He understands this that is this the is job. the job. Yeah. So I, I, presented myself as professionally as I possibly could because mm-hmm. he, he was there for me. This is one of the reasons uh, why if you ever get a chance to interview a celebrity, mm-hmm. I highly recommend coming up with interesting questions. Yeah. Not not like weird or invasive. Don't get weird about it. But just like don't ask, hey, what was it like working with Ben Affleck? Mm-hmm. They've done that one. Yeah. Come up with something weird. You or know? or if, if, if it was me, I would have sat down next to, to Matt Damon and said, so Ben Affleck, what was it like working with Matt Damon? <laughs> Seeing if he gets the joke. Probably yeah. one he would just smack me in the face. I, would just, I, would just, uh, I never had a chance of interviewing Matt Damon once, but mm-hmm. what I really wanted to do was ask him about Mystic River. No, Mystic River. Mystic, <laughs> Mystic Pizza. Pizza. Thank yeah. you. His first, talk, his first speaking role in a movie was in Mystic Pizza, mm-hmm. and his only line, if, if memory serves, is they're eating lobster at a table, because it all takes place in New England. He's eating lobster at a table, and he's like cracking open the tail. It's like, hey, do we eat the green stuff in the tail? <laughs> that was his line? That was the line. <laughs> that was that David's introduction. Pizza, yeah. It's a good movie. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, and I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but I got to do a phone interview with John Cusack, who oh, yeah. also hit or miss interview according to stories. Yeah, uh, sometimes it's sometimes, yeah, sometimes very open. If it's a passion project of his, he's going to talk a lot about it. I was interviewing him for The Raven, which oh, was yeah. he uh, played Edgar Allan Poe. He played yeah. Edgar Allan Poe, yeah. and that I thought that was really interesting. And it's like you you've only played a few autobiographical role or a few biographical roles. Asking him, you know, the difference of preparing for those kinds of roles about Edgar Allan Poe. I was squeezed in at the last minute for that interview. Yeah. He was done for the day. He was supposed to go home at five. And the studio called me at like 510 and said, he'll stay for you. It's like, so, okay, so I'm. I'm 66 of 65 interviewers that he was supposed to talk to that day. Yeah. And he was having none of it. He was just done. I, I, I could tell yeah. on, I could see his posture on the phone. Yeah. Like it was <laughs> like, he was just slumped yeah, over I've a desk. A his, his, like his hand was, his face was in his hand is like, and he's just like giving me nothing. What was it like playing Poe? Why, why are you talking about that? <laughs> yeah. It's like, so that was, it was I, after a shift, man. Yeah, his shift was over. He wanted yeah. to go home, uh, yeah. so he was. He, he didn't I'm very sympathetic. It's a job. 
It's a tough job. Me- meanwhile, I talked to Udo Kier. It's supposed to be 10 minutes. He talked to me for 40 minutes. So sure. that one was a good interview. Um, yeah. So yeah, those are those are our interview experiences. Yeah, but interviewing that, people, again, it's a very specific it, it format. It's yeah. not like you run into them on the street. And again, it, some people in the interview format are ready to do their job. Some people aren't necessarily great at that part of the job. Mm. Some people just have a bad day. Some people, you catch them at the end of the day and their energy is low and there's only so much you can do. But when you catch someone sort of randomly, yeah. you know, you see them out and about, you don't know what kind of day they had. So mm-hmm. I, I tend to be a little forgiving, but... That's no excuse for being rude. I I don't think there's a great excuse for being rude. I just know Mm -hmm. that if someone just poked me in the shoulder at any given moment, there's a decent chance I might be sad then. Mm. You know, be like, oh, hey, yeah, hi, how how are you? Like, there's it can happen. Mm. Um, So in any case, I'm, I'm sorry you had a rough experience with Roger Ebert. I do believe that while Roger Ebert deserves a lot of respect for being a film critic, it, it kind of bugs me that he's like the only film critic a lot of people know from earlier eras. Yeah. And as a result, he tends to get kind of put on a pedestal. Like I've heard people say things like, yeah, everyone's writing these negative reviews. Why can't you be more like Ebert? And I'm like, Ebert was vicious. He, he, he published, there's three Roger Ebert books, three of them of nothing but negative reviews. Yeah, because he was epically mean mm. when he didn't like a movie. He was offended. Often, mm-hmm. when a movie was bad, and he wrote very vividly and humorously. Uh, here, uh, the, the, what's the quote from North? I hated, 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 hated this movie. Hated it. <laughs> what did he say about Freddy Godfinger? Like this movie oh, isn't even this movie isn't scraping the bottom of the barrel. This movie is beneath barrels. This movie doesn't deserve to be in the same sentence as barrels. As barrels. <laughs> he was yeah, mean. He, he, he could he could really turn a phrase. I, that I guy. don't so, necessarily agree with all. Of that. I, I respect him for being a writer, and I don't think it's mm-hmm. necessarily up to celebrities to be polite all the time. Well, especially uh, if you're a but, critic, you have to be honest. Exa- all yeah, the time, exactly. You know, and so, sometimes that means you're honest about being a jerk, which uh, sucks. Everybody's in bad moods. You, yeah. I, I've worked retail. I've met a lot of dickheads because yeah. they're. <laughs> if you've ever worked retail, you understand that humanity can be pretty mean. Yeah. Because uh, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that an encounter with a celebrity was always bad. And if or, you yeah. or if you meet a, a celebrity or a hero of yours and they're rude to you multiple times, that's going to change your view of them. Yeah. But, but just uh, remember that unless they're like monsters. Hmm. Um, they're, they're just people. And sometimes it's okay to like, just sort of say like, they did some cool things I like. Also, they're a flawed person and maybe we can take something from that. That's what I got, honestly, because Mm. sometimes, yeah, it's disappointing. What can you do? It's disappointing. Let's move on. Uh, Here's a letter from Starship. Hello, Starship. Ooh, hi, Starship. From the band. Cool. Uh, When we were working on the Star Wars holiday special. Um, Hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Uh, I love the recent episode you did about queer cinema. Oh, well, thanks to uh, B. Peterson for that one. They they suggested and co-hosted that one. That was a really good episode. Um, I'm glad we could do that. I just wanted to add a couple that I'm a fan of. Uh, Maurice. From 1987, with oh. a young Hugh Grant, as one of my is one of my favorite movies. It was the first queer drama I saw that had a happy ending, and that meant a lot to me. Uh, Desert Hearts, Making Love, The Boys in the Band, and Sunday Bloody Sunday are some others that I think are worth checking out. Uh, I, I also like The Boys in the Band. Making Love is a weird uh, a weird animal. It was I didn't know that one. Um, it was with oh, what's his handsome McHandsome face from L.A. Law. Don uh, John- no, not Don Johnson. Not John Johnson. Um... That one guy. That one guy. Yeah. Craig 
Ferguson, not Craig Ferguson. Oh, he's, yeah. the, he's the talk show host. Um, Steve Steverson. Steve Steverson. Ha- the third. Ha- handsome McHandsome face. Uh, it was about how he was uh, married to a woman and began to, and kind of realized uh, that he's actually into men. And there was a sex scene between two men in that movie. Mm. Not a- hugely explicit. It's, you know, shot the way a lot of pretty tame Hollywood mm. uh, love scenes were filmed. I'm looking at the cast of L.A. Law. It's Oh, it's that one guy. <laughs> it's that, it is that one guy. You know that guy. That one guy. He was from, that guy. There's a, uh, Corbin Burnson? I, I think it was Corbin Burnson. No, it okay. wasn't Corbin Burnson. Harry uh, Hamlin? Harry Hamlin. That was okay, it. It was yeah, Harry yeah. Hamlin. Okay. Jimmy uh, Smits was in it as well. Jimmy Smits was not in Making Love, however. Okay. I just want to make sure. Uh... But I remember the advertising campaign, and they addressed this in that documentary film, The Silly Lloyd Closet, uh, how it was going to be a Hollywood film from a studio that featured a scene of two dudes kissing. Mm-hmm. Horror of horrors. It has two dudes kissing in it. These things used to make headlines in, in like newspapers. And the advertising campaign was like a warning. It's like... This is a very mature drama about very real adult issues. Right. And it's about, it's called Making Love. And it's about two men. It's like, oh my God, really? It, like, we have to hang baubles all over this thing because we're so embarrassed just to say it's a romance with two men in mm-hmm. it. Like, they're afraid someone's going to go into the theater not knowing mm-hmm. and be shocked and, write an and panicked or something, and, like, yeah. complain to the theater and start boycotting or something. It's so crap. It was so crap. Uh, yeah, ma- Making what Love a is, is, is a, 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 I think it's a pretty broad melodrama, but I know it has its fans, including Starship. On to my question, I'm thinking about starting a blog where I review various media from the 1970s. Hmm. I was born in 1990, but I find myself drawn to 70s films and television. You're a good Gen Xer. Um, (laughs) I'm not used to writing reviews. Would you suggest that I write some just for me first to work on my writing before I post anything, or should I just go for it? Uh, P.S. I normally tend to agree with William on films more than Whitney. Sorry, Whitney. You don't have to agree with me. Um, That's fine. (laughs) But I had to check out I'm Thinking of Ending Things after your lively debate, and I have to say that I loved it and as well on the way to being one of my favorite films of the year. Great. I know I'm in the minority on that one, but it's been uh, I adored, I'm thinking of ending. Yeah. Thing. Uh, I saw a fun uh, joke poster with Bender in the middle. And it's, oh, like, it's I'm thinking yeah, of bending things. I, that, that, I get <laughs> it. Bender from Future. Animal. I get it. Uh, all the best starship. Um, so yeah, you want to go start for to, it. Go for it. Basically yeah. is, is my advice. Um, when you're writing reviews of movies, you're going to, it's going to take a while to find your own style. That's what I've learned. Mm. Um, there are certain things that need to be in every review, a certain baseline amount of information so that people know who's in the movie, who directed it, what's mm-hmm. it about. But the way that you decide to parse out that information, where that goes in the structure, how you decide to introduce people to your thoughts about the film. Do you start with a plot somewhere mm-hmm. or do you start with an interesting observation and work your way around to it? Do you mix it up and do it different every single time? The way that we talk about the art that interests us is just like the way we talk about anything. It, be, it's, it says a lot about our personality. Mm. It's not just what we say, it's how we say it. So it's going to take you some time. It's almost like you're learning another language. Mm. It's going to take you some time to get comfortable speaking it, where it's going to flow a bit more naturally. And you're going to be able to articulate not just what you're thinking, but what you're thinking in a way that entertains you mm. and that you think other people will enjoy. Um, and that just takes time. So mm. my advice to you is, yeah, just jump right in. Um, you've probably read or heard enough movie reviews right now that you know what one feels like. Yeah. And if you write one that doesn't feel like a movie review, it might actually still be good, but maybe you want to rewrite it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, you're going to find your voice over time. It took me many years to get to the point where I was mm-hmm. kind of comfortable talking about movies. And sometimes I feel like I've actually lost my neck. Like yeah, I, I was yeah. better a couple of years ago, like feel, that kind of thing. I read my earlier stuff and I, I, I cringe a lot when I read a lot oh, of my yeah. earlier stuff. Yeah. Um, but I also realized that my earlier stuff had a lot more personality and I feel like I don't have that anymore. Like you were just throwing yourself on the page, yeah. but it, on some level that can also mm-hmm. read as a little unprofessional, but Trang, it's part of the growing process and I've, I've you been, have changed as a person and you wouldn't have thought yeah, those yeah. things or thought to articulate them in that way now. And it's a whole he, thing. Here, here's a, a amateur mistake that I can tell you from experience. Mm. Don't try to be funny. Don't just, <laughs> unless you're a genuinely funny person, well, then go I mean, for it. But I, I took a lot of inspiration from like jokier film critics because yeah, I lo- enjoyed writing, I, reading their stuff. Yeah, me so too. I tried to be really, really funny in a lot of my earlier reviews, and they're not funny. Yeah, because I'm not funny. <laughs> it's not about. It's again. I think good criticism should be entertaining to read Mm. but that doesn't mean they should be jokes that doesn't mean they have to be like outlandish Mm. that doesn't mean you're just trying to say hey mom watch me dive and then do something crazy and then hope people get something out of it like and and some people can do that actually and make it work but in my experience no no it's better to just be articulate and Mm. as thoughtful as you can and approach things from a perspective that means something to you, whether it's the perspective anyone else shares or not, mm-hmm. and try to share information, but also your passion and the way that you view the art, if it is articulated well enough, and if mm-hmm. you are just thinking about the films or whatever it is you choose to review, um, if you're passionate about it and you have a, dis- a, a distinct point of view you may get to experience the joy of someone saying, you know what? I never really thought about that or I wasn't interested in this film. And after reading your review or listening to your podcast or whatever, I really wanted to. And then maybe I saw it and I liked it. Mm -hmm. That's one of the ultimate compliments for any critics. So Mm -hmm. um, I encourage you to do it. I think we need more good critics and I think we need more critics who aren't just focused on the same five big things right now. So I look forward to it, please. uh, If you're on Twitter, Tweet us. Let us know when and if you start this blog. No pressure. Take mm-hmm. your time. Do whatever you want to do. But if you put it out, we would love to read it. Okay. So please tweet us. Yeah, well, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Check it out. Um, here's a letter from Sterling. Hello, Sterling. Hey, Sterling. Uh, hey, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Uh, McCool has umlauts over both O's. So <laughs> McCool. Um, first, I want to say how big a fan I am of your weekly podcast, and I appreciate the great perspectives the two of you provide on the TV and film landscape. As a black film lover, One of the films I find frustrating in movies is when a white character is unnecessarily featured in films based on a true story. Oh, golly. Oh, yeah. (laughs) These are characters who primarily exist to show that, quote, not all white people were racist or help the audience feel that if they were in a similar situation, they would have been one of the allies. A movie that presents this in a great way is 2016's Hidden Figures. Yeah, I was literally thinking Hidden Figures. I'm also thinking of 42. Um, Mm. I think the film does a great job of highlighting the untold story of a team of female African-American mathematicians who served as a vital role in NASA during the early years of the U.S. space program. However, my problem with the film is that it centers around Kevin Costner's character, Al Harrison. Mm. If you remember, the character shows that he wasn't racist by tearing down the segregated restroom sign to help Taraji P. Henson's character, Catherine G. Johnson, from having to walk across the facility to use the restroom. Al also encourages Catherine to watch John Glenn's Friendship 7 Mission on TV with him 
with him towards the end of the film mm-hmm. to show that they were equals and he appreciated her hard work. All of this is well and good until you realize that Al Harrison is not a real person, rather a composite character mm-hmm. based on a few different real people, a composite character that can help streamline the narrative of the film, but in real life, nobody at NASA actually desegregated the restrooms and Catherine spent the mission launch hidden away with all the other African-American mathematicians yep. listening to the radio instead of being recognized as the vital team members they were. I feel that Al's primary purpose in the film is to be a surrogate for white people to convince themselves that they would have acted just like he had if they worked mm-hmm. at NASA in the 1960s. And I get it. Who doesn't want to feel like they are Kevin Costner? <laughs> at the- Depends <laughs> on the movie. I can look at a guy like Kevin Costner and see a giant peach grub that can, that can fart the Blue Danube. What? That's dialogue from the movie Freaked right there. I don't recall that. <laughs> yes, I do remember that <laughs> now. Yeah, Randy oh Quaid God. said that. Okay. Um, at the same time, I feel you could have just as easily shown the great contributions these black women made to the space chromum while showing they were still being mistreated. Yeah, and it would yeah. hit a little harder, wouldn't it? Yeah. The troubling thing I found about these types of characters is they give the audience a version of history with rose-tinted glasses. They make it seem like the oppressed groups have always had some white that was there to save them or help them in their struggle, when in many instances, this was not true. Many white people want to feel like they would have been on the right side of history, just like they think their parents and grandparents were, instead of confronting our real past. I understand it's not fun for white audiences to be told that they would have been the villain in these stories, but we shouldn't always have this white surrogate to hide behind. This is part of the reason why in 2020 we are facing the same issues where some people think that racism is a thing of the past and not a systemic problem that never went away. Yeah. And it's also why things like the 1619 project are so important. Look that up by the way. That's important, uh, it's yeah. yeah um, That's great. It's about school curriculums, about reteaching history through the perspective of slavery. I, I don't, yeah. I'm not going to say all the too, details. Too many, here, but, yeah. too many history classes when I was young, mm. just sort of, when we talked about slavery, but we also just went on a big thing about how great Thomas Jefferson was. Yeah. And it's like, nah, no. Yeah, we, <laughs> We're leaving out a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the 1619 project yeah. is actually really great. Um, uh, if if we don't recognize what the underlying problem is, we can't begin to move forward. So my long-winded question is, yeah. what other films for you come to mind where the white character's sole purpose is to make the white audiences feel good instead of confronting their own biases and our own real history? Some I can think of are Sandra Bullock in The Blind Side. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hilary Swank in Freedom Writers. Mm. Uh, Matthew Broderick in Glory. Mm-hmm. And of course, Emma Stone in The Help. That's which I think might be the most egregious example it's, from recent it's years. It's certainly one of them. Um, yeah. Thanks again for your amazing work each and every week, and for answering my question, Sterling. Yeah, um, um, this is this is all. I would agree with all of this. Mm. This is very apt. Um, there are a lot of movies that attempt to illustrate um, stories of racial inequality, and hopefully, are strides forward uh, over the many many years. Mm. Um, but they're often trying to be marketed to a very specific audience. Oftentimes, um, oftentimes they're trying to be palatable to what they perceive of as white audiences. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you well, don't want to have all of the it's... white characters be bad. And as a result, you end up changing history in such a way that ultimately, I feel ultimately often has the... It, even in Hidden Figures, a movie which has a lot of good stuff in it. I think the main oh, yeah. cast is really wonderful. Um, and there's, it certainly does illustrate some a, a chapter of NASA history that I didn't know, while also bullshitting a lot of it. Um, 
But the problem with that, and when you have those scenes like Kevin Costner, like, dramatically ripping off and desegregating the bathrooms, is that it makes it look like, and now everything's cool, right? Mm. It makes it look like it's part of the past rather than part of the present. Or rather something that, even if it's not exactly the same now, is still a relevant issue. This pervasive racism, this institutionalized racism. And as a result, these movies can ultimately feel really irresponsible. So I agree with everything you just said. Mm. And frankly, there's a ton of it. And I'm trying to actually... um, I'm reminded of a Whoopi Goldberg film called Karina Karina. Where Mm. she was... um, she had, she was Ray Liotta's nanny. Yeah, they, they they fell in love. Uh, yeah, yeah, she was taking care of the little girl, and yeah. and she, she ended up falling in love with Ray Liotta. But so much of it was just about how Ray Liotta was like growing as a person, and I was like, mm. no, it's about Whoopi, <laughs> Whoopi yeah. story. What are you <laughs> what are you doing to me here? What, what the hell? Um, Glory is another great example where Matthew Broderick is by any sort of conventional, you know, screenplay class sort of structure mm-hmm. the protagonist of the film he's the least interesting part of the film yeah. he's not important to that i mean he is he's mm. he was in charge but denzel washington and morgan freeman everyone else in that movie is so much more captivating yeah and it's really ed zwick did this a lot actually like <laughs> last uh, the last samurai where yeah. it's like you get ken watanabe who's like incredibly charismatic and engaging but the movie's about Tom Cruise and how yeah, well, important it is that he becomes a samurai. And I'm like, no. It's kind of frustrated that even as late as the 2000s, we're still telling that white man goes native narrative. Yeah. Uh, which was Avatar's really, the same thing. Avatar's it, the same. Yeah. It's Yeah, we're trying to hide it in like science fiction, but it's pretty obvious with still something like Avatar. Still the same exact thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned 42. I feel like, uh, you know, Harrison Ford is... is Oh, he's not racist with Jackie Robinson. He's the one who's making sure Jackie Robinson can get the chances he needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not so bad. Did you ever see that film Race? Oh, no, I um, didn't. Yeah, that was about... Um, it was about Jesse Owens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never actually it, got around it, it to that was, one. Yeah, yeah. about uh, Jesse Owens and how he uh, competed in the Berlin Olympics in mm-hmm. 1936. And uh, Jason Sudeikis in that movie plays the white surrogate character, who is just not at all racist. Mm-hmm. Uh the most interesting scene in that movie is when Jesse Owens is being interviewed by Lenny Riefenstahl, uh, who's, oh. who's like, she's like a supporting character in the movie. It's like, wow. you, that's your movie. I mean, that's fascinating. Je- it's yeah. Jesse Owens that's talking so to Lenny weird. Riefenstahl and they just sort of pushed it off way off to the side. That's so weird. I think Carice Van Houten played Lenny Riefenstahl in that. Oh let me, my let me look God. That's uh, fascinating. Okay. I really want to see this movie. Yeah, um, it's, it's not great, but yeah, there's yeah, a lot of, I'll, lot of I'll take it. I, I didn't mean to miss it. Yeah, it was yeah Curie's Van Houten plays Lenny Riefenstahl in that movie. I just looked it up. That's incredible. But yeah, Jason Sudeikis plays, uh, like, the the Olympic uh, coach, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy in charge of uh, making all of the important Olympic decisions. And yeah, he's presented as, well, they're racist over there. Not like here in America, where we're not mm-hmm. in 1936. America in 1936 was one of the least racist places to visit. Sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. <laughs> uh, so it was really, and and Jason, Jason Sudeikis, like he has such a modern sensibility. He's just sort of this laid back comedian guy that he's clearly, very clearly standing in for a modern audience. Um, 
And you, you brought that, you articulated this very well. We're watching a lot of films from the 1930s as part of our Only the Best podcast. We're yeah. talking about Best Picture nominees. And we kind of, and there have been a few films that very mawkishly try to tackle the issue of race in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but none of them are made by black filmmakers and none of them feature black characters. In fact, yeah, there was a time in not too long before that when uh, African-American actors weren't allowed to star in movies. It was against yeah. the law. And actually, there was, uh, a, there was an interesting case in... Uh, we did a commentary track for the Richard Pryor movie Brewster's Millions, mm. uh, which is a, actually based on a novel that has been made many, many, many times even before Richard Pryor and Walter Hill got to it. And there was a version in the 1940s which is actually on that disc, which is actually better than the Richard Pryor movie. Uh. And there was a, a, a character of color who was actually, you know, not treated as with as much racism as other characters and still there, but Mm. it could have been worse. And there were actually places in America that banned the movie because it wasn't racist enough. Yeah. 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 That's bad. (laughs) That's real bad. But there's, but yeah, but you watch these movies and you realize that so many of these movies, this pervasive institutionalized racism was everywhere. was, you couldn't miss it Mm. if you were alive at the time. But these movies just don't deal with it. And you start to realize when you start thinking about it that all of these movies that take place in that time period, and, and before that time and period... Were, and were made in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. Or, 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 or set even earlier. If there are white people in that movie who are not explicitly shown to not be racist, at least for the time, preferably at all, but, you know, then you got to realize that they're probably not doing anything about it. Mm, they're they, not, they're not, not racist. There's yeah. a decent chance that they're just extremely racist and it's not coming up in conversation because they're only talking to other white people. Mm. So, and it's kind of gross actually. I mean, it kind of changes your perspective on a lot of these films. And, uh, that part sucks. We're about to talk about gone with the wind on our next episode. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm not looking forward <laughs> to that conversation. So, that's yeah, gonna be rough. that's a conversation we're going to have. That is not fun. Um. So, uh, but there's there's a million examples, yeah, sadly, because too many of these movies. Or, or, or look at um, a Green Book. Green, uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Green Book. and just by himself. Done. Like it's yeah. this whole thing where like we're gonna show him be racist for like one scene where you're like, oh, these these people of color are in my house fixing something and they touch the glasses, so I throw the glasses away. And then it's my racism is not really going to come up for the rest of the movie because I'm supposed to be this audience surrogate mm. and we want to like be cool. And I'm like, no, you f- fuckers. You know how you fix green, that movie? You know how you fix green book? Don't make it. Uh, you get that one scene mm-hmm. where Viggo Mortensen picks up an entire unsliced pizza, folds it like an envelope <laughs> and eats the whole thing. And you just play that on a loop for it's, 90 it's, minutes. It's a gif. Yeah. There you, you go. Make that a gif. That's the gif. That's how you fix Green Book. You don't make it about a story about that guy. Yeah. No, it's about a guy who sits on a bed and eats a pizza. Yeah. Um, and, then, I, I, and then make a good movie about that character. An interesting reversal of this is actually uh, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, which was originally mm. written to be about a bunch of white dudes. Mm. And Spike Lee and his co-writer, who I forget off the top of my head, uh, they rewrote it so that it was about black soldiers in Vietnam and actually had them... to. I actually rewrote the screenplay to yeah, the same basic thriller kind of structure was there, mm. but 
that was not an apolitical time. There is no apolitical time, and they actually not, not during war. Well, I mean, like there's and and also the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and so they actually just made took this sort of baseline movie that probably wasn't going to address systemic racism, and just by shifting the focus away from characters who were probably white as sort of like a baseline mm. because like they were just unfortunately that's, to be. That, that's kind of where movie because all the guys who run the studios are all white men for, uh, mostly so, like, for, for the most part yeah, i don't want to yeah. I, I haven't done my research but it's a lot mm. and so as a result spike lee just shifting the characters and having them be aware of their society and their culture and the politics at the time and actually feeling things about it and talking about it takes what could have been a very conventional probably very forgettable film mm. and ended up making it one of, if not the best films of the year. So, in any case, regardless, screenwriters have to do some fucking work, mm-hmm. and we need to stop making every movie that is about racial relations something that, like, we're we're trying to market towards white audiences to make them feel better. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. That's the reason why Green Book Rose me the wrong way. It's, like, it's for a variety of reasons, but, like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, like, look at, like, the history of horrifying, shocking, unforgivable racism in this country, and then feel good about ourselves when the credits roll. Yeah, that's yeah. basically well, and, fundamentally irresponsible. And the year, and it was especially galling because the year Green Book came out, there were a huge handful of films by African American filmmakers, mm-hmm. very specifically about race in America. Yeah, blind that spotting, were, that were Get way, Out, Black Klansman. Way better. Yeah, there's Blind Spotting, there's Black Klansman, there was there was also Get Out, there was Black Panther. Yeah, it was uh, same year. Was, wasn't yeah, yeah. there's The Hate You Give. Uh, all of these yeah, movies came out in the year. same year yeah all, all made by black filmmakers all about race in america that dealt with the problem with so much more intelligence and nuance mm-hmm. and green book mm. the m- most aggressively mediocre of the one with the Hollywood least film. to say the one with the least to say the one that's that stated that if we could all be friends then racism just wouldn't be a thing that's a nice thought, yeah. but that's not how it works. Yeah, and there were yeah. so many better films and more intelligent films about it. That pissed me off. Yeah, and and, and yeah, and, and made by white filmmakers. So yeah. golly, Green Book was such a travesty. I know. Anyway, we should move yeah. on. We, we, we should. Got, move we have on. time for one more letter. Okay. Uh, here is a letter from Shad. Hello, Shad. Mm-hmm. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, I had a long, very long question about fandom toxicity. I was going to ask you, then I realized it's 2020 and we're all depressed enough. So instead, fair enough. I'll ask you what your favorite cats in movies or TV are. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I do love cats. Mine in no particular order. Clovis from Sleepwalkers. <laughs> Clovis is the real hero of that movie. Yeah. What other cat would assemble an army of cats to fight the Sleepwalkers and break a window with his paw to get inside a house? Does that happen in that movie? That movie's awesome. I love that cat. The cat punches through a window? Yeah, that cat's it's the amazing. hero, man. The villains uh, of the movie are cat monsters whose greatest weakness is other cats. Yeah. I uh, Jones from Alien. Uh, oh, yeah, jo- Jonesy. Jonesy. Yeah, Jonesy. yeah, Jonesy is great. Uh, Jones is the epitome of a cat who just doesn't give a fuck. He literally <laughs> did nothing to help. He just sat and waited to be carried to the next ship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fuck Jones. <laughs> uh, Salem from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. The fun most cat. gifable cat of all time. Very fun uh, cat. Isis from the Star Trek episode Assignment Earth. We just did that one. <laughs> Isis kicks ass. Yeah. Isis, there's a there, if you if you were not on our Patreon, we just did an epi- we just reviewed an episode of Star Trek called Assignment Earth that was a backdoor pilot 
for a potential spin-off series that would have been basically an American version of Doctor Who, except the Doctor in this version had a pet cat who was super intelligent, and mm-hmm. like when he's like climbing a rocket at NASA to sort of rewire it so that'll like blow up in space and save the world, the cat's there like helping him like on his shoulder and like ISIS rules. The cat. <laughs> the cat. The cat, ISIS. That particular oh. cat rules. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> work there. Uh, he also says, "Could Spock have ha, could have looked any cooler holding this cat?" And was it a cat? <laughs> we'll never know. Uh, the general from Cat's Eye. Uh, yes, another oh, yeah. Steve, another Stephen King cat. That's this one cat. defies the stereotype of the breath stealing cat that saves the day. Thanks for all the amazing content you produce, and stay safe, Shad. P.S. I watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and I loved it. Yay, Good man! Uh, First Cow is next on my watch list. Cool. Good man. I still haven't seen First Cow. I'm looking forward to it, though. I'm going to get to it. Right. Um, yeah, cats. Cats and movies. I love cats and movies. I love cats in general. Luca is actually sleeping at Whitney's feet right now. Oh, hey, Luca. He's so cute. Can't do anything. Jellicles can't. Jellicles <laughs> don't. Uh, amongst my favorite cats in movies. <laughs> uh, let's see. There's. Uh, it's. It's. It's a movie I that I think, think gets hyped up. Cats. I think movies. it gets. Right. I think it gets hyped up too much. It got because it's just a cult favorite. Mm. But it's a fun movie. Uh, Binks from Hocus Pocus is a fun cat. I haven't seen Hocus Pocus. Uh, so. a, a dude in like the Salem Witch Trials era gets turned into a cat, but he mm-hmm. can't die. So he's been like guarding this like spell book for mm-hmm. centuries. And when these kids, you know, on a dare accidentally mm-hmm. release the ancient witches, the cat's like, what have you just done? Cat's good. Um, I remember that darn cat. Oh, yeah, that was a good I darn remember, cat. I remember the cat from outer space. Good darn cat. Um. I remember Catwoman's cat from the 66 Batman film. Why didn't any of the other Catwomen have cats? Have a cat. Like in Batman Returns, she had cats. And in yeah, fact, they give her like cat insanity powers or something. <laughs> this really b- bizarre sequence in Batman Returns. And then, in, and then in the Holly Berry Catwoman, you find out that not only is that actually canonical with Batman Returns, but uh, cats finding like recently murdered women and then like breathing into their mouth and giving them cat powers is a thing that happens a lot. And afterwards, we were just sort of chasing Serge around the house going, come on, Serge, cat powers. <laughs> it was cat powers, Serge. Cat well, powers. Well, I like cat power. Um, yeah. Keanu? I mean, I, I don't Keanu know. I love. <laughs> Keanu's just a kitten. Keanu is the uh, best. Keanu is a movie. I'm actually amazed at how overlooked Keanu is mm-hmm. as a movie. It was the comedy that uh, Key and Peele made before Jordan Peele like, mm-hmm. stepped off on his own and went into the horror, uh, the horror side of things. Um, Keanu is really funny, and that cat is super adorable, and mm-hmm. I love that cat. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, what's the da- name? Oh. Data had a cat. Spot. Data had a cat named Spot. Yeah, I remember that. Wasn't that, I remember cute? that cat. It was cute. Data looked up, like, the commonest pet names on Earth when he got a cat, and, and Spot was the commonest pet name, so he named his cat Spot. Mm. And then Spot survived a starship crash. It's true. <laughs> and it made Data cry. We made him cry oily tears. Um, Star Trek Generation sucks. <laughs> uh, I G- love Star Trek, but I watch uh, that movie a lot. Gigi from Kiki's Delivery Service. Oh, yeah. That yeah. cat fucking rules. In the uh, English dub, uh, Phil Hartman did the voice. Yeah, that was actually a pretty good dub, all things mm. considered. Um, they were actually, like, going... Uh, they were trying really, really hard to make sure that the Hayao Miyazaki and other Studio Ghibli films had, like, really top-notch American dubs to the extent that... I don't mind watching those versions. They're actually pretty good. They're, they're um, pretty good. They're pretty good. Like, if you have to watch those versions, like, so people just don't feel like subtitles, 
I disagree. But they're not bad versions of the film. Like Phil Hartman's a really good version of that cat. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think beyond that because there's some Shere Khan. <laughs> Shere Khan, George tiger. Sanders from uh, Jungle Book, and then uh, I actually rewatched um, like a few episodes of Tailspin recently. Okay, that was a weird pitch. That show. It's, Back in- it's the characters from the 1967 version of the Jungle Book. Yeah, but we're remaking Only Angels Have Wings. Yeah, so it's uh, but, uh, about a bunch of like freight pilots in the Caribbean, and there's also sky pirates and. Shere Khan. Jungle Book characters. And Shere Khan <laughs> plays basically Lex Luthor. Like, just put Shere Khan in a business suit. Hmm. Sold. And they put, I will watch your show. And Baloo the Bear was the main character, and he wore, like, one of those uh, fluffy-necked uh, flight jackets. Yeah, because he's he cool. A, a boy sidekick who could surf on a little, like, sky surfboard. Yeah. And his job was to deliver freight. Yeah. By a plane, and that was the series. And there were and there were sky pirates. I think it was like Don Carnage was like that, the name. That's of right, the... Don Carnage. Yeah. Oh gosh. Weird show. Why did I watch that? All right, because yeah, it was on. Because it, yeah, it, it was on. on at the time. We didn't have stuff on demand. Uh, we just took what they gave us. Uh, uh, other cat show I liked SWAT Cats. No, you didn't like SWAT. Cats. I did like SWAT Cats. You actually. watched SWAT Cats. I did I don't watch think SWAT. You cats. I did cats. like SWAT Cats. They were they were mechanics. Mm. They were cat mechanics who. Secretly in their junkyard, like repaired a Harrier jet and like flew around oh their God. big metropolitan area, like fighting crime in a Harrier jet, mm. and then just quietly snuck away to the junkyard. Like that's a thing that could happen. Hilarious. And uh, and and I've, I've said before that I am one of the few people, and I'm going to lose you all. I'm one of the few people who likes Garfield. I like Garfield. There's nothing wrong with Garfield. It's I like, just, I like Garfield as character. Some Garfield stuff we don't like. Well, th- those uh, those live action movies aren't good, hmm. but you watch uh, Garfield in disguise every Halloween, don't you? Don't you? If you yeah. don't, you should. All those ho- all those holiday specials, those Garfield holiday specials, are pretty good. Uh, um, I'll, I'll go to bed for the ho- for the Halloween special and the Christmas special. I don't think the Thanksgiving special is very good. Oh, I like the Thanksgiving special. Oh, fine. Yeah. I also like uh, uh, the one where they go to Hawaii, Garfield in Paradise. Uh, uh, the one where they become. Uh, movie stars in Hollywood and that lose weird, their souls. That, yeah, that weird one where he gets reincarnated a bunch of times. Yeah, Garfield has nine lives. That's a weird one. I have the book version of that, which I read to my son yesterday. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> uh, oh, another great cat. I finally mm. finished uh, uh, the new version of She-Ra recently. Mm. Catcher fucking rules. And well, she well, gets a, a space that, cat. That's a cast person, isn't a, it? And she gets a space cat. Okay, so but the space cat, a cat is a cat. A cat. Right. It's a giant cat that also turns invisible and stuff. It turns you invisible too if you want. It's a good show. I'm not watching that show. It's a great show. <laughs> it's a great show. I'm sure it's fine. I know there's been some controversy know, about behind the scenes stuff. The show know, itself is still mostly I know good. a lot of people really love the show. I'm yeah. not I'm not dumping on the show. Yeah. But. Anyway, cats. I love cats. You love cats. Dark cats love cats. Luca, you like cats? He's yawning. He's bored with us. Okay. Um, oh, now he wants to, now he wants his belly rubbed. Okay. Well, we need to get on that. So thank you, everybody, for writing in. That is the end of We've Got Mail. Uh, you can email you can email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and we might read your letter on an upcoming episode of 
We've got mail. You're also more than welcome to uh, tweet us at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, and of course, this podcast and all of our other podcasts wouldn't be possible without contributions from our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a ton of exclusive content over there, including new uh, our new podcast about Batman from the 1960s. Uh, we have a podcast about Star Trek. We have a podcast about all the stuff that isn't on Disney Plus, but should be. Uh, Tailspin is on there, but there's other stuff that's missing. Uh, we have commentary tracks. We have Oscars podcasts. We have uh, basically a ton of stuff. And if you sign up now, depending on your tier, you could get, I think, anywhere from like 50 to 100 hours of content like in a backlog that's just instantly available to you mm-hmm. if you want. So it's all right there. And you also get the polls. You get to help pick future episodes of our various shows. Um, so anyway, that's whole thing. And uh, thank you again to everyone who wrote in. If we didn't get to you, hopefully we'll get to you next week. If not, keep trying. We just can't catch up. You write in a lot, and we're very grateful to you. Um, Whitney, am I forgetting anything? Uh, buy one of my radio dramas. Do it! Yeah, I've, I've, I've made three of those so far, that, or at least that are available uh, via Patreon. If you subscribe at the $20 level, you just get them. Yeah, no additional but, cost. But uh, if you want to buy them piecemeal, just contact me through the various social medias, Twitter or uh, Instagram and uh, send me ten bucks. If you want all three, I'll make you a deal. Cool. Uh, one is about a time traveling lesbian bar. One is about a counterculture uh, goth shop in the nineties, and another one is about a video cassette that could predict the future. Nice. Now buy buy those three things. Uh, throw some money my way, I'll, and you will get very entertained. By and you can just, with full you, cast music sound effects. You the can whole find lot. him on Twitter. You can send him a message on his various things. Yeah. Um, so anyway, thank you everybody once again, and uh, sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.